We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Greetings to those who watch below. On today's video, we're going to take a look at the stories of five more truly mysterious people from history. But before we start, I'd like to say thank you to Steffi Ray, Wicked Witch, Lisa Watts, Lefty Kim, M.A. Way, Julie B, Jess Black Curtain, Christina Groves, LT Punisher 666, and Chris BLK Chris for being those who dwell below, an exclusive channel membership that gets you shoutouts at the start of every video. Also, if you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the channel, making sure you hit that notification bell so that you never miss a video. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon In early September 1944, a strange series of events occurred in the small Illinois town of Mattoon. According to eyewitnesses, numerous sightings and even physical evidence left behind, the town was under attack by a mysterious man in black, who was, for unknown reasons, spraying some sort of paralysing gas into the windows of unsuspecting residents. Who this man was, what his agenda might have been, and where he vanished to, all remain a mystery to this day. The bizarre events began on the night of August 31st, when a man awakened feeling sick. He questioned his wife about leaving the gas stove on, but when she tried to get out of bed to check, she was unable to move. Later, it was learned that a neighbour experienced the same effects that night. The next night, Mrs Kearney was awakened by a strange, sweet smell in her bedroom. When she tried to move, she found herself temporarily paralysed. Her screams brought her neighbours, who called the police, but no sign of a gas leak was found. Around midnight, Mr Bert Kearney returned home from work, unaware of what had happened earlier that evening. As he turned into the driveway, he spotted a man lurking near the house, dressed all in black, close-fitting clothing and a black watch cap. He was standing near a window when Kearney spotted him and he turned to run away. Thinking he was a window peeper, Kearney gave chase, but lost the man in the darkness. As the events of the two nights became publicly known, panic gripped the town. The newspapers handled the story in a wildly sensationalistic manner, and years later would be blamed for creating a hysteria that would be used to explain all of the weird happenings. But the newspapers could not be blamed for the very real happenings taking place in Mattoon. By the morning of September 5th, the Mattoon Police Department had received reports of four more gas attacks. The details of each of these attacks were eerily similar, even though none of the witnesses had compared notes or had time to check their stories. In each of the cases, the victims complained of a sickeningly sweet smell that caused them to become sick 
and slightly paralysed for up to 30 minutes at a time. Late on the night of September 5th, the first real clues in the Mad Gasser case were discovered. They were found at the home of Carl and Bueller Cords, but what the clues actually reveal still remains a mystery. The Cords returned home late to find a white cloth lying on their porch. Mrs Cords picked it up and noticed a strange smell coming from it. She held it up close to her nose and felt immediately nauseated and light-headed. She nearly fainted and her husband had to help her inside. Moments later, her lips and face began to swell and her mouth began bleeding. The symptoms lasted almost two hours. The police were called and they took the cloth into evidence. As they searched the property, they also found a skeleton key and an empty tube of lipstick on the porch. They decided the prowler was probably trying to break into the house, but had failed. Apparently, he had dropped his lipstick and a cloth with gas residue on it, too. The mystery was getting deeper by the day. Later that same night, the gasser attacked again, this time spraying gas into an open window. The attacks continued, and Mattoon residents began reporting fleeting glimpses of the gasser, always describing him as a tall, thin man in dark clothes with a tight black cap. More attacks were reported, and the harried police force tried to respond to the mysterious crimes that left no clues behind. Eventually, the authorities even summoned two FBI agents to look into the case, but their presence did nothing to stop the attacks. Panic was widespread, and rumours began to circulate that the attacker was an escapee from an insane asylum, or a German spy who was testing out some sort of poisonous gas. Armed citizens took to the streets, organising watches and patrols to thwart any further attacks, but several took place anyway. The gas attacks were becoming more frequent and the attacker was leaving behind evidence, like footprints and sliced window screens. One local group did manage to arrest one suspect as the gasser, but after he passed a polygraph test, he was released. The gasser, apparently not dissuaded by the armed vigilantes, resumed his attacks. The next incident took place at the home of Mrs Violet Driscoll and her daughter Ramona. They awoke late in the evening to hear someone removing the storm sash from their bedroom window. They hurried out of bed and tried to run outside for help, but the fumes overcame Ramona and she began vomiting. Her mother stated that she saw a man running away from the house. A short time later that same night, the gasses sprayed fumes into the partially open window of a room where Mrs Russell Bailey, Catherine Tuzzo, Genevieve Haskell and Mrs Haskell's young son were sleeping. And at yet another home, the principal of the Columbian Grade High School and her sister were also overwhelmed with gas and became quite ill. They said they began choking as they awakened and felt partial paralysis in their legs and arms. And they also stated that as the sweet odour began to fill the room, there was a thin blue vapour, and they heard a buzzing noise from outside that they believed was the gas's spraying apparatus. The following Saturday night, several dozen well-armed farmers from the surrounding area joined the patrols in Mattoon. In spite of this, another six attacks took place anyway, including the three just mentioned. Another couple returned to their farm on the edge of Mattoon late in the evening to find their house 
filled with sweet-smelling gas. This seemed to be the last straw for the Mattoon authorities. Any further attacks were treated with a more sceptical tone, and despite claims by victims and material evidence left behind, all new reports were dismissed and it was suggested the local residents were merely imagining things. New stories began to appear in the papers, where psychology experts opined that the women of Mattoon had dreamed up the gasser as a desperate cry for attention, as many of their husbands were overseas fighting in the war. The Mattoon police chief issued what he felt was the final statement on the gas attacks on September 12th. He stated that large quantities of carbon tetrachloride gas were used at a local Atlas diesel engine company, and that this gas must be causing the reported cases of illness and paralysis. It could have been carried through the town on the wind and could have left the stains that were found on the rag at one of the homes. As for the mad gasser himself, well, he was simply a figment of their imaginations. The whole case, he said, was a mistake from beginning to end. Naturally, a spokesman for the Atlas Diesel Engine plant was quick to deny the allegations that it was their company that had caused the concerns in the town, saying that the only use for that gas in the plant was for their fire extinguishers, and any similar gases used there caused no ill effects in the air. Besides, why hadn't this gas ever caused problems in the city before? And how exactly was the gas cutting the window screens on Mattoon homes before causing nausea and paralysis? The last gasser attack took place on September 13th, and while it was the last incident connected to the attacker in Mattoon, it was also possibly the strangest. It occurred at the home of Mrs Bertha Bench and her son Orville. They described the attacker as being a woman who was dressed in a man's clothing and sprayed gas into a bedroom window. The next morning, footprints that appeared to have been made by a woman's high-heeled shoes were found in the dirt below the window. After this night, the mad gasser of Mattoon was never seen or heard from again. To this day, the identity of the mad gasser remains a mystery, as does the reason why he, or she, chose to wreak havoc in Mattoon. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Leloyan. Leloyan, also known as the Ghost of Moles, was a supposed humanoid who was set to haunt the woodlands near the Swiss town of Maul. Leloyan is described as a tall humanoid creature dressed in a gimp suit and gas mask that completely covers its head and face. The nature of its appearance brings into question of whether they are a cryptid or merely a person who likes to dress up and take walks. For ten years, the Swiss town of Maul has been terrified by a strange figure stalking the woodlands known as Leloyan. Police have been searching for it since it was first sighted. It has been walking the same route in the woods every day for a decade, stalking the town from the bushes. Le Matin, a local paper, 
published what is believed to be the first ever photograph of the picture. I came across him near the marches, said the unnamed amateur photographer who tracked it down. I approached him up to a dozen metres away. He had a military cape, boots and an army gas mask, an antique type I think. He measured more than 1.9 metres. He stared at me, then turned its back on me and left in silence. One local resident encountered Laloyan in June last year, when the creature appeared to be clutching a bunch of flowers. Marianne Desclos, who lives in the area, told Le Matin that her run-in with it came in spring. It was a rainy Sunday, she said. He had a cap, a dark cloak, and his gas mask. What could possibly be going through his head? I don't know, but it was unforgettable and unpleasant. I hope I don't run into him again. After all the attention from the press and police, it seems that the creature or person known as Laloyan has taken his own life. Its clothes were found in the woodlands, with a cryptic note reading, The Risk of a Hunt for the Beast. The French article in La Matin revealed that the note translated to saying that Laloyan decided to commit suicide. This mysterious character, who people came across on a regular basis in the forest in Demol, wearing a gas mask and military cloak, has abandoned its old garments in the forest. Its garments were found accompanied by what they called the death certificate and the will of the ghost of Malls. This letter was published in the communal bulletin of Sal. Le Loyan accused Le Matin of murdering a harmless being by revealing his existence. No further sightings of Le Loyan have happened, leading us to ask the question, did the person commit suicide or merely stop being this character. Jerome of Sandy Cove Although the versions of his discovery differ, the general story goes that in September of 1863, in Nova Scotia, an eight-year-old boy walking on the beach of Sandy Cove met a man who was suffering from cold and exposure. He also didn't have any legs. When the boy's family took the legless man to their home, in the village of Digby Neck, they learned that he didn't speak English. The townspeople named him Jerome after he murmured something that sounded like that name when they asked who he was. Not only did he not speak English, he didn't speak any words. As curious Lucky Lou's began stopping by the house to check out the mysterious stranger, Jerome would growl at them like a dog. When he was examined, the plot thickened. It seemed that his amputations were fresh, so much so that they still had the dressings on them and hadn't yet healed. As well, it seemed that a skilled surgeon had removed the man's legs. It wasn't an accident. After a while, the people of the mostly Baptist town of Digby Neck somehow decided that Jerome might be Catholic, by some accounts because of his Mediterranean appearance and he was shipped off to the nearby Acadian community of Metagan. He was taken in by a Corsican-Canadian polyglot, Jean-Nicolas, who tried French on him, in addition to Latin, Italian and Spanish. Jerome either didn't speak them, or didn't want to. Nicolas kept Jerome in his house anyway, caring for him for another seven years, along with his wife, Juliette, and stepdaughter, Madeleine, for whom Jerome became a favourite. It was during this time in Metagan that the government was notified 
of the unidentified double amputee and was granted a $2 weekly stipend for his care. Despite living with a linguist, Jerome never learned to speak any language and could only ever grunt and growl. After Julie died, Jerome was sent to live with the Como family in the nearby town of Saint Alphonse. Jerome stayed here for the rest of his life, allowing the Camos to collect admission from onlookers to view him, in addition to his government stipend. Jerome died in 1912, almost 50 years after he was found on the beach. Nobody ever figured out who he was. Jerome has become a favourite character in the folk history of Nova Scotia, with songs and films telling his story, and theories on his background still abound. Some say that Jerome was a sailor who was punished with amputation for an attempted mutiny, while others say he was an heir to a fortune who was mutilated, usurped, and then disposed of. According to Nova Scotian historian Fraser Mooney Jr., Jerome was an immigrant from a town in nearby New Brunswick who suffered from gangrene and was dropped off on Sandy Cove after he became too great of a burden on the town. None of these theories have been proven, and to this day, Jerome's identity is still a conundrum. Spring-Heeled Jack Spring-Heeled Jack, or Jack the Devil, is a character of urban legend and folklore in Victorian-era Britain. First sighted in 1837, more frequent tales emerged throughout the ensuing century, his name comes from his ability to leap great distances and heights. During the second half of the 19th century, the creature became more entrenched in urban legend, often leading to more and more speculation of who Spring-Heeled Jack was and his appearance. During and after the boom of Spring-Heeled Jack sightings, his appearance became more detailed. According to witnesses, he was a frightening and terrific figure, with metal claws on his fingertips and eyes that resembled fireballs. He was said to wear a loose-fitting black jacket with a helmet and a tight-fitting white shirt. However, other versions of the story claimed he was more upright and had the appearance of a gentleman, with a top hat, black polished coat, etc. It was also recorded in numerous cases during the 1860s that Jack had a wicked smile of unimaginable terror. Between the 1870s and 1890s, he began to take on a more devil-like persona and look, with more people saying that they had witnessed him having wings instead of an overcoat, and he wore less clothes. Witnesses also reported that he wore a mask of a demon or devil, or had the face of one. However, the one consistent aspect of Jack's appearance were his polished black boots. The very first sighting of Jack came in October of 1837, when a woman by the name of Mary Stevens was walking to Lavender Hill. A tall, coated man leapt from a building into the street, where he grabbed her with his metal claws, and while forcing himself upon her, he began to tear at her clothes. After her screams were heard, the aggressor fled the scene, leaping back onto the building he had originally come from. Following this account, many more stories of this spring-heeled man occurred, the most notable being the Olsop case. The Olsop case was published in several notable newspapers and penny dreadfuls of the time, 
Jane Alsop recalls the moment when she was attacked. I entered the door of my father's house to a man claiming to be a police officer. He told me to bring a light, claiming, We've caught Springheel Jack here in the lane. I bought the person a candle and noticed that he wore a large cloak. The moment I had handed him the candle, however, he threw off the cloak and presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, vomiting blue and white flames from his mouth, while his eyes resembled red balls of fire. Mrs. Alsop reported that he also wore a large helmet, and that his clothing, which appeared to be very tight-fitting, resembled a white oilskin. Without saying a word, he caught hold of her and began tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were of some metallic substance. She screamed for help and managed to get away from him and ran towards the house. He caught her on the steps and tore her neck and arms with his claws. She was rescued by one of her sisters, after which her assailant fell. After the original rash of sightings in the 1830s, Jack seemed to go quiet. During the 1870s, stories of him began to rise again, this time at Aldershot. The story went as follows. A sentry on duty at the north camp of Aldershot peered into the darkness. His attention was attracted by a peculiar figure advancing towards him. The soldier issued a challenge, which went unheeded, and the figure came up beside him and delivered several slaps to his face. The guard shot at the man with no visible effect. Some sources claim that the soldier may have fired blanks at him, others that he missed or fired warning shots. The strange figure then disappeared into the darkness from whence he came, in astonishing bounds. Jack was last reported being sighted in England in 1904, jumping down the streets of Liverpool while laughing maniacally. Jure Grando Jure Grando was a villager in Istria, a region in Croatia, who may well have been the first real person described as a vampire in historical records. Jure was a peasant who lived in the small village of Kringa. He died in 1656, leaving behind a widow and a wake of terror that haunted Kringa for the next 16 years. Every night for those 16 years, the good people of Kringa would hear knocks throughout the city in the middle of the night. The knocks were warning, a promise that someone who lived in the house that had its door knocked had very little time left on this earth. Giorgio, the village priest who had buried Giore, soon put it all together. Inexplicably, Giore Grande had returned from the dead to haunt and terrorise the people in this town. That wasn't all he did, though. Every night, Giore would visit his widow, his rancid corpse and ghastly face, which looked like he was smiling and gasping for breath at the same time, would terrorise and assault her every night, forcing what he thought was her marital duties on her well after his death. Sixteen years later, the villagers finally began growing tired of living in a constant state of fear. Giorgio eventually confronted Giore, wielding his cross and yelling, Behold Jesus Christ, you Strigoi, stop tormenting us. And at that moment, tears began falling from Jure's eyes, and he retreated. A couple of nights later, a brave prefect named Miho assembled a group of villagers to confront and kill Jure. They found and chased him, 
and Miho stabbed at Jure in the chest with a hawthorn stick. It failed, with the stick bouncing off his chest as Jure retreated once again. A group of nine villagers snuck into the graveyard with crosses, lamps and another hawthorn stick. They tiptoed their way to the grave of Jure and dug up his coffin. They opened it, shocked to find the perfectly preserved corpse of Jure with a smile on his dead face. Giorgio, who was with the group, then looked upon the corpse and said, Look, Strigoi, there is Jesus Christ, who saved us from hell and died for us. And you, Strigoi, you cannot have peace. Giorgio then took the hawthorn stick and slammed it into the heart of Jure, but it would not pierce his flesh. They quickly tried to exorcise the corpse of Jure, but it didn't work. One villager, named Stepan Milosic, decided to take matters into his own hands. He quickly found a saw and tried to saw off Jure's head. As soon as the saw cut the skin, Jure's eyes popped open and a blood-curdling scream escaped his mouth. Blood flowed from his wound and began flooding the graveyard as the blood of his victims returned to the earth. Finally, peace returned to Kringa. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to today's video. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to leave a like and also subscribe to the channel, making sure you hit that notification bell so that you never miss a video. So, until next time, sleep tight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.